0: To joy, to be in your presence and uh, and to have the privilege of bringing the word of the Lord to you this morning. Thank you, Pastor Shane. Or you probably just call Shane, right? In in the U.S., we have Pastor so and so, and it's usually their first names. But you know, it's kind of the way it goes. But it's a privilege to be here. Thank you for allowing me this this uh, honor. Um, This morning we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture, Psalm 33, you might want to turn there now, and I hope you have a handout that you can follow along in the message uh, that really helps us deal with how to face fears in life, Uh, something that we all face. Uh, Fear is a reality that most Christians face regularly, and in these last years, for many people, even more forcefully. Sometimes fear can be so strong and relentless that it nearly captivates and paralyzes even committed Christians. Fear of an unknown future. Fear of uncertain finances. Of difficult relationships. Fear of unwanted and unpredictable health problems. Fear of carrying out one's responsibilities when one feels inadequate fear of cultural changes that stand against our Christian convictions, and so much more. Even even for committed Christians, fear is inevitable as we go through life together. And yet there is hope. One of the most surprising and glorious ironies of the Christian life is this, that fear can be overcome but it can over be, only be overcome through fear. That is, fear of this world and anything that we face can only be overcome by fear of God. Fear God and fear nothing else. I love the phrase, the, the, the line in uh, John Newton's Amazing Grace, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. and grace my fears relieved." There it is. Fear God and fear nothing else. So indeed this morning, in Psalm 33, we're going to be looking at some marvelous things that help us understand what the fear of the Lord is and through that, see how that understanding, that confidence in who God is, can lead us to be, to, to, to be fearless as believers who face things in this world. So just a little bit about Psalm 33 before we get into it. It is a Psalm of David, even though it doesn't say that in your Bibles. So look at your Bible at, say, the beginning of Psalm 34. Notice it says a Psalm of David. Psalm 35, a Psalm of David at the beginning, the superscription. Uh, Psalm 33 doesn't have that. Actually, the first book of Psalms, Psalms 1 to 41, are all Psalms of David, although four of them, Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 10, and Psalm 33 do not have the superscription that say a Psalm of David, but there's good reason for thinking in each one of those cases it is a Psalm of David. The main argument for Psalm 33 being a Psalm of David is that the, the first verse of Psalm 33 echoes the very same ideas and wording even from the end of Psalm 32. So look at Psalm 32, just the last verse with me. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, you His righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. And then Psalm 33, verse 1, sing for joy in the Lord, you His righteous ones, praise is becoming to the upright. So that similarity in, uh, in wording and in phrases would indicate that the the psalm actually continues. So it may have been the case that actually Psalm 33 comes right out of David's uh, repentance and uh, his sorrow for his sin in Psalm 32, then rejoicing in the Lord and His power and His goodness. So indeed, as we move into Psalm 33, we remember this is a psalm of David who knew the Lord well and understands uh, how we should relate to Him as those who fear Him. It is a psalm of praise. In fact, there are five imperatives, five commands that are given in the opening three verses that relate to praising God, giving thanks to God, singing our songs to Him. Look with me, and I'll count them off with my my fingers. Uh, This is the New American Standard translation, by the way, I'm reading from. So Psalm 33, verse 1 Sing for joy in the Lord, you His righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Sing praises to Him with a heart of tense rings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. So indeed, right off the bat, the, 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 the psalmist wants us to enter into praise of God, to thank Him, to be grateful for Him, and to sing songs of praise with skill, we did that this morning. Thank you, skillful musicians who led us in, uh, in that wonderful time of singing together, worship through song. So, th- this call to praise the Lord, to give thanks to Him then, is, is uh, uh, then expressed in how we understand the words and the works of God. So, look at verses 4 and 5 for the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. So the word of God and the works of God both issue forth from us praise, thanksgiving, rejoicing, singing of praises to God. Now the rest of the psalm then continues on with this note of praising God and rejoicing in Him, but really focuses on two aspects of the fear of the Lord. A number of years ago, I did a study on the fear of the Lord throughout the Bible. I got, uh, you know, a concordance. This was back before I used a computer. And I got a concordance and went through every single usage of fear of God or fearing the Lord or fearing God that I found in the Bible and uh, printed them all out. And then uh, just took time over several, several days and looked at the context for every one of them. And one thing I noticed as I did that is that there were two uh, broad categories of the fear of the Lord that were dominant throughout the Bible. These two aspects, and honestly, there's almost an equal number of passages for each one of them. They both express the fear of the Lord, but in really quite different ways. You'll notice the title of the message that you have on your outline is Fearing the God of Awesome Greatness and Abundant Goodness. There you have it, these two aspects of the fear of the Lord, the awesome greatness of God, His majesty, His power, His, uh, His ability to, to reign and rule, create, and, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and providentially govern all that He has made. and. His goodness and kindness, His mercy, His his grace toward those who look to Him. So the awesome greatness of God and the abundant goodness of God express two aspects of the fear of the Lord, and both of those are in our psalm. So we have an instance of each of them. So what we'll do as we work through this is take a look at the two halves, really, of the psalm. Uh, after verse 5, and uh, and notice these two aspects of the fear of the Lord, and rejoice in how God is both great and good, how our hope can be put entirely in Him. So look with me then at verses 6 to 12 to begin with. <coughs> And notice uh, in verse 8, we'll come to the fear of the Lord, but of course we'll read right past it, but that's where we find it. So notice the context as we read these verses together. Psalm 33 verses 6 through 12. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, by the breath of his mouth all of their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples, but in contrast, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord the people whom He has chosen for His own inheritance. So let's notice as we look through here first the context of verse 8 where we see the fear of the Lord, and then we'll focus on what the fear of the Lord is in verse 8, the very content of the fear of the Lord, and then we'll look at some what I like to call canonical witness, that is, uh, witnesses from other passages of Scripture where we see those same ideas expressed. So first, the context for the fear of the Lord. Notice in verse 6 that the author is speaking of God as the Creator of all things. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made by the breath of His mouth all of their hosts. Now it may be that what the psalmist is referring to here is simply an observation from Genesis 1 as God creates the world. How does He do it? Do you recall? Then God said, then God said, then God said, so God speaks and brings into existence the universe. So by the word of the Lord, by the breath of his mouth, he brings the, the universe into existence. And it may be that simple, that that's, that is what verse 6 is referring to, but I have a hunch it's more than that. Because we realize that those two words that are used in Hebrew for word and breath are words that are, are associated when you come to the New Testament with the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit. The word dabar in Hebrew for word is, is connected to logos in the New Testament, the word for the Word who is the Son of God. So John 1-1 begins, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, he was in the beginning with God, all things came into being through him. Through whom? Through the Word of God. You see it? So indeed, it may be that the author, the Holy Spirit through the author is conveying what then becomes clear in John's gospel is that it is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of the Father, who is the Word of the Father by whom the heavens are made, the the, the, the universe is created. And then, by the breath of His mouth, this is the word ruach in Hebrew, and that word ruach oftentimes refers to the Spirit. And of course, we know that the Spirit of God was present in the creation of the universe. We see Him in Genesis 1 verse 2, right? So right there in the Genesis account, the Spirit was hovering over the waters, and, and indeed He was there present. So it may be the case that, indeed, this is a Trinitarian uh, verse that indicates the Father creates through His Son and through the Spirit. By the word of the Lord, the Son, and the breath of His mouth, the Spirit, He brings creation into existence. But in any case, we know for sure that this is an expression of God Himself who brings it into existence, and then verse 7 amplifies one aspect of creation as… You think in, Genesis, in the Genesis account of creation, he highlights one aspect in verse 7. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Well that is referring to days two and three of creation, where God separates the waters below from the waters above, and then on the land he separates the water from the land. As he talks about how he deals with, with uh, the, the waters and the earth itself. So I, I begin to wonder, of all things you could point to in the created universe of God, why would you point to these waters as what, what you would, you would uh, want to call attention to that is remarkable and astonishing and to give praise to God for His awesome greatness? The waters? It seems like kind of a funny thing to pick out of all the – why not the mountain ranges? Why not the the starry heavens, you know, like Psalm 19 does? But indeed, here it's the waters. Well, here's what I, I found remarkable as I just thought about this more. It occurred to me that separating the waters below on earth really is a phenomenal thing to set up the boundaries of the oceans, to have this place of the inhabitation of all of those sea animals and then to protect the land from the sea. I mean, you're familiar with that here, right? You know, with living so close to the coastline, you understand how important that is, that there is this separation of waters from land, and God is the one who regulates that. So that's remarkable. But then at the end of verse 7, he lays up the deeps in storehouses, I think as a reference to the waters above, that he keeps in storehouses in the clouds. So, you know, I'm thinking, what, what is really the big deal about that, waters in the clouds above? So the question came to my mind, I wonder how many gallons of water comes down when it rains. So I googled, this, this is a very helpful exegetical tool, you know, is, uh, is Google. I googled and asked the question, how, how, how much rain comes down on one acre of land, uh, oh, it, it, with one inch of rain. And here's the answer one inch of rain, one acre, 27,000 gallons of water. Do you have gallons here or do you have liters? Liters. Well, I don't know what the liters would be, so we'll have to stick with gallons. You can translate it, right? <coughs> 27,000 gallons of water for one inch of rain, one acre of land. And one gallon weighs about eight pounds, roughly. It's a little bit more than that, so we're using conservative... So, if you just took 25,000 and times it by eight, that makes it easier, right? 200,000 pounds of water uh, for... for. Uh, One inch of rain with one acre of land, and you just think of where we live, Jody and I live in Kentucky in the United States, these storms come up from the Gulf and just go all across the country, you know, and state after state after state gets covered with water. I mean, you think of how much water is up there, and I think gravity is still in effect, right? Up there in the sky? And it doesn't just all dump at one time, but rather the clouds move and drops water across all that land. What an amazing thing God has done in putting water in the storehouses above. So indeed, the, the greatness of God seen in creation. Then verse 8, we'll come back to it, but he says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. And then verse 9, for he spoke and it was done, he commanded and it stood fast. So again, just an affirmation that this was the work of God. He sovereignly spoke and brought into existence all that is. His word is fixed. Nothing can prevent His word from happening, which then leads him to move from creating the world to governing the world in the verses that follow. Verses 10 and 11, for the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of people, but in contrast, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. Oh my goodness, the leaders of our world, in the nations of the world, think they are so smart. They think they have everything in control. They think they're the ones who govern what's take, what takes place. Verse 10, the Lord nullifies the council of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. It's His word that stands. I mean what tremendous comfort that is, that not only God, not only does God create the heavens and the earth, by His word it is fixed, but He governs everything that He creates. It's His counsel, it's His will that is accomplished. Do, do not forget that as things develop in the world that are deeply distressing. We know God is in control. We know that He is the sovereign ruler over these things. So, indeed, those who know these things, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom the Lord has chosen for His inheritance. Okay, the context then is very clear, the power of God in creation and in sovereign providential ruling over what He has made. Now, let's take a look at verse 8, which is right there in the middle of this. Let the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Now one thing we're helped with here in terms of what it means to fear the Lord is that this verse is presented with what's called synonymous parallelism. That is, you have phrases that indicate parallel ways of saying essentially the same thing. This is the way much of Hebrew poetry is written, is with different kinds of parallelism. In this case, it's synonymous, not contrasting, not, not, uh, not opposites, but rather the same idea expressed in different ways. You can see that, right? Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world, well, inhabitants of the world is parallel to let all the earth. So then the last part of it, let all the earth fear the Lord. What's parallel to fear the Lord? Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? To stand in awe of God because of the awesome greatness of His power to speak and bring into existence the universe. By the word of the Lord the heavens are made. By the breath of His mouth all of their hosts. Indeed, He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. And then ruling over all things, the... the, the, the governance of the Lord, the rulership of the Lord over everything. It's His will, His counsel that is carried out, not the counsel of the nations. So indeed, we stand in awe of God for His awesome greatness. Really there's a sense in which we should tremble before Him because we can't comprehend the power of the Almighty God. Indeed, He is infinitely great and glorious in His power. Now let's take a look at just a few other passages, canonical witness of this same idea that we see in some other passages. So for example, in Psalm 96 uh, verses 4 to 6, we see another example of the awesome greatness of God, the fear of the Lord in that sense. The psalmist writes, For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. So indeed, he is to be feared above all gods because he alone is the creator. He's the one whose strength and beauty are manifest in all that he does. And then Psalm 90, verse 11, who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? Now, this is a passage which represents a little bit of a, of a nuance in this concept of the fear of the Lord means, in many passages of Scripture, the fear of the Lord means to, to tremble before the awesome greatness of God, but here the awesome greatness of God is manifest in His fury, in His anger. So there are passages that speak of God's power manifest, but His power manifest in judgment, His power manifest in bringing upon people who have turned away from Him uh, His discipline. And, uh, and so indeed, who understands the power of your anger and your fury? according to the fear that is due you. Uh, Exodus 14, the last one we'll look at here, is such a vivid example of this. The context of this passage is that the children of Israel had been brought out of Egypt uh, by the Lord through the Red Sea. They saw the waters parted. Uh, they crossed the land. And then afterwards, the Egyptian army attempted to, to come and pursue them. And as they were in the middle of the Red Sea on dry ground, God told Moses, raise your staff, and the waters came back over the Egyptian army, and all of them were killed. This is the passage that comes right at the end of that. So Exodus 14, verses 30 and 31, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, The people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So to hear the fear of the Lord is to see the power of God exercised both in judging those who are your enemies, the enemies of God, and saving the very people of God. This double act of salvation, the mighty hand of God in saving them through the Red Sea, and the mighty hand of God in destroying the enemies of Israel in the Red Sea, both of these elicit then fear of the Lord, a trembling sense of God's greatness, awesome magnitude and power and might exerted in creation and in the acts of God of judgment as well. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, one way you fear the Lord is by standing before Him, trembling at His awesome greatness. But there's a second expression of the fear of the Lord that you find throughout the Bible, and we see this in verse 18 also. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope for His steadfast love. So here, fearing God, is a confident and expectant trust that God will provide, protect, sustain, and show His abundant goodness toward those who look to Him alone for their deepest needs and their longings. So let's look again at first the context of these last verses of Psalm 33, the content of the fear of the Lord, and then some canonical witness of these things. So first of all, the context, let's read verses 13 to 22 of uh, Psalm 33. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, who understands all of their works, the king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his steadfast love, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, according as we have hoped in you. Well, the context here begins in verses 13 to 15, emphasizing the omnipresence of God, that he sees everything that takes place. He is everywhere present, and his eye observes all that occurs. So, verse 13, the Lord looks from heaven and he sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. So, indeed, he sees everything that takes place. There is no hidden place from God, no private action from God. Indeed, he sees all that is, that is, is occurring constantly and has perfect knowledge of it all. And not only that, but he knows the inner workings of each person in the actions that they do. Verse 15, he who fashions the hearts of them all, he who understands all of their works. So God knows everything externally and everything internally about us. He knows everything. He sees everything. And this applies to all people everywhere. So there is this comprehensive vision of God that he has. We call it omnipresence, where he is everywhere present and he sees all that occurs. And so there, there ought to be in our hearts both a sense of the, the kind of fear of when we do wrong, we know that he sees it. We, we don't get away with it. He knows everything that occurs. But for a believer in particular, that notion of God being everywhere you go is tremendously comforting strengthening, uh, provides faith and hope to know no matter where I go, no matter where God sends me, He's there. He's with me. He sees what's happening. He understands my heart. He understands what's going on inside of my life. So really those verses for a believer are deeply encouraging, comforting, and strengthening. And we'll see that it even gets stronger in the way God appeals to us in verses that come after that. But then verses 16 and 17 shows then the fact that God is everywhere present and with all of his power and might is, is there available, how foolish it is then to look elsewhere. So the king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. How foolish we are to turn from God to different kinds of resources that are here at the horizontal level, and thinking that's where our hope can be founded, that's where we can find help in need, is go horizontal. Indeed, given the earlier verses, should we not go vertical and and, and develop instincts and habits to go to God first and foremost in our times of need, I, I believe that it's uh, uh, it is appropriate to talk with other people about things, to to go horizontal in the sense that you you want to share your need and you want people to pray with you about things. But the question is, where is our hope? Where is our confidence? Where are we putting our trust? Is it in mom and dad? Is it in friends? Is it it in our neighbors? Or is it in the Lord? So here is, I think, an admonition for us to learn to go vertical uh, first and foremost. Go to the Lord first. I I just think if we don't do that, we're really not acknowledging God is our hope. God is God. God is the Almighty One. God is the All-Wise One. We look to Him for what He has, And if he directs others to help with this, fine, that's his prerogative to do that, but let us be sure that our hope is in the Lord. So then with that context of looking to God, seeing his greatness as it's expressed toward his care for us, it's amplified that in verse 18, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his steadfast love, And then he moves on out of that to amplify ways in which God cares for his people who look to him to deliver their soul from death, to keep them alive in famine. I think that verse has a particular application to David, uh, you know, when he was being pursued by Saul or pursued by Absalom. And so these times when David's life was threatened and he didn't have food to eat, I think these were memories that he had of his own experience uh, that his soul was delivered from death. He was provided food to eat by the Lord and didn't starve to death. And in verses 20 to 22, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help. He is our shield. Our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. So the verses, the context of this of of verse 18 really does highlight the sense that our hope should be in the Lord. We should look to Him. He's the one who will rescue us. He's the one who will deliver us. He's the one who will provide for us and protect us, care for us, and, and comfort us in our times of distress. And verse 18 now, the content of the fear of the Lord in verse 18 is such a precious one. So look with me again now at verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. What does that mean? On those who hope for His steadfast love. So again, with the synonymous parallelism of verse 18, just as we had in verse 8, we know what the fear of the Lord means here. It means to hope for His steadfast love, to wait for, to trust in, to look for His steadfast love to come and be all that you need in your time of distress. Look to Him because He's able to help. <coughs> and it's, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because back in verses 13 and 14, you saw the eye of the Lord on everyone, right? Look at that again. Verse 13, the Lord looks from heaven, He sees all the sons of men. From His dwelling place He looks out on All the inhabitants of the world. So there is that sense of the omnipresence of God, but verse 18 is his particular attentive gaze for his own, right? The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. They get his undivided attention, as it were, right? So I just did an illustration of this—it's really a feeble illustration because it's about me, a feeble dad, right? So, the, but here it is. I remember times when our two girls, now of course grown, uh, but when they were really little, and I would take them to the playground. You like that, don't you? I would take them to the playground, and uh, goodness, you know, when they're so little, learning to navigate the monkey bars and and uh, climb those stairs up to the top of the slide. I mean, that's a big deal for for these little ones. And so I was there in the playground, and my eye was on all of the kids, right? I, I saw them all. But my attentive gaze was on my two, watching every movement. And Jody could testify a couple times, getting there just in time to scoop and catch before they hit the ground, right? So the idea is the eye of the Lord is riveted is focused, is, is, is given full attention to those who fear Him. Don't you want His attentive gaze on your life? Well, look to Him. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. What does that mean? Who hope in His steadfast love. He's my deliverer. He's my helper. He's my healer. He's my hope and comforter. He's the one I look to. So indeed, depending upon him, waiting upon him, uh, as, uh, his trusting in him is, is what it means to fear the Lord. We look to him alone. Do you see the, what, what's common between the two senses of fear of the Lord? Standing before the God of awesome greatness and trusting the God of, uh, of, of abundant goodness. What's common to both of those is, your, is you have a riveted attention on God. God is the one who is great. And good. God is the one who is majestic and merciful. It's your focus on Him for His power to be expressed and His love and kindness to come and deliver you from your your time of need. So now now let's take a look at just some canonical witness, a few other passages that highlight uh, this abundant goodness of God. Psalm 31 verse 19, how great is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you. There's the, the parallelism again in that verse, right? What does it mean to fear the Lord? It means to take refuge in God. Find him to be your place of safety, where you go in order to flee the, the enemy or the threat that is around you. Psalm so 34 verses 8 through 10. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. So to fear the Lord is to look to him for what he alone can provide. Goodness. We lack so many things, uh, and, and, uh, and we realize how much we need. Where do we go when we realize we need things? Where, where do we go in our times of lack, our times of, of discouragement? We should go to the Lord. That He's the one who cares for us. And then Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? but there is forgiveness with you that you may be loved. Well, surely that's true, but that's not what it says, right? There's forgiveness with you that you may be feared. You fear the Lord by recognizing He alone is the one who can bring what you need most. He alone can bring forgiveness. He alone can bring strength. He alone can bring comfort. He alone can bring protection and provision. I look to Him and honor Him as God as I go to Him for what I need. To go elsewhere is to dishonor God. To go to Him is to honor Him, and He will never, oh my goodness, isn't this wonderful, He will never hear you as you come to Him again and say, you know, you're bothering me. You're coming too often. No, in fact, it's just the opposite. He would want to say to every one of us, you're not coming nearly often enough. Come to me, look to me for all that you need. So indeed, fearing God is both sides, fearing the God of awesome greatness trembling before Him because of His majesty, His might, His power, His judgment that can come upon those who turn from Him, and trusting Him with all of your heart because of His abundant goodness, His pledge to care for those who are His, who look to Him alone. May we grow in fearing the Lord. Well, just a few points of application as we bring this to a close. The first point really focuses on both together, trying to pull together both aspects of the fear of the Lord. The second one and the third one focus on each part of the fear of the Lord, and then one final, final admonition. So first, how do these go together? Well, fear of God conquers fear of this world because… here's my suggestion, here's how it works. (coughs) Fear of God conquers fear of this world because God is greater than any and all in the world and because God is unfailingly good to those who look to Him. Don't we need to know both of those things in, in order to uh, conquer fear that we have in the world out here, fear of things that are happening in, in the, the world we live in? We need to know that God is greater than anything else in the world. His power is unstoppable. His will cannot be thwarted. We need to have that confidence in God's sovereign power. But then we also have to believe and trust in the fact that God is unfailingly good to those who look to Him. When we see the power of God and the goodness of God, then indeed we can trust Him and conquer all of our fears in this world. Secondly. Speaking specifically of the awesome greatness of God, fearing the God of awesome greatness promotes a humility that is deep, genuine, and pervasive. It leads to a shunning of sin and a pursuit of righteousness as God is righteous. It really puts us in our place, doesn't it? We realize who the powerful one really is. We realize who the righteous one really is. And we realize that if we stand with him, we benefit so much, but if we stand against him, we run the risk of coming under his, the heavy hand of his judgment. So indeed, fear the Lord by wanting to walk in his ways, humbly accepting his path as the path of life and goodness and joy that he calls us to live. Third, Fearing the God of abundant goodness promotes a hopefulness no matter what happens in life, along with a freedom to share generously with others, knowing that God is committed to do what is best for his own who fear him and who those who fix their hope on him. So if our hope is in the Lord, we know he's going to provide for us. You see how that frees us up to be generous, frees us up to, to, to share with others? We don't have to hoard. We don't have to hang on to things, clutch them. We don't have to hold on to our own lives. We can freely give ourselves to ministry and, and service in ways in which God wants to use us because we realize He's going to care for us, the eye of the Lord is riveted upon those who fear him, those who hope for his steadfast love. So indeed, put your focus upon God and his commitment to you and be freed up then to give yourself in service and in generous giving to others. Then finally, last point, so important, we can only know this God of awesome greatness And abundant goodness only through Christ. As Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So I don't know if you have trusted in Christ. I hope you have. If you have not, you need to realize God is glorious, He's amazing, and He holds in His hands every good thing. Every good and perfect gift is from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there's no uh, sh- shadow of turning or change, as James one seventeen says. So indeed, what is keeping you from coming to the Lord? Do you think you know better than He does? He's the one of infinite wisdom. Do you, do you, do you think that coming to Him will result in your having less happiness and joy in your life? He's the one who says through, through Jesus, I have come that you might have joy and might have it a, a life and have it abundantly. These commandments I give to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 1611. So indeed, it's through Christ, come repent of your sin and enter into the life God has designed for you and get in relationship with this God of abundant greatness and uh, uh, – awesome greatness and abundant goodness. For those of us who do know Him, let me ask you the question, are you pursuing Him? Are you getting to know Him better? Are you growing in the knowledge of God and, and finding more reasons to see, yes, indeed He is great, oh He is so good? Are you understanding more about Him that can help you fill out, you know, that, that, that understanding of His character that will enable you to trust Him more and more no matter what happens? My goodness, we need to grow in that because we don't know what's going to uh, hit us in, in days ahead. And growing in the knowledge of God now in order to prepare ourselves to trust Him in greater ways. Uh, for what's ahead is so important. So may God give us desires and longings to pursue Him with all of our hearts through His Word and, and grow in the knowledge of God. He's worthy of that effort, is He not? Beholding the God of awesome greatness and abundant goodness, oh my, what a joy. Well, let's pray together as we close Father, we thank you so much for the privilege we've had of being able to look at this psalm that highlights these truths about you that we long to know better. So, Lord, please, we do pray, all of us here, that we would grow in seeing your greatness and your goodness in, in, uh, in greater ways over the, the days and months and years ahead. And may we honor you in the way we put our trust and hope in you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.